0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. I'm David Hoffman, here without my co-host, Ryan Sean Adams. But nonetheless, we are here to help you become more bankless. And on today's show, this is a very special episode, we are talking about NFTs on Bitcoin. And this has been the absolute talk of the Bitcoiner world ever since Ordinals, this new protocol, has started to fill up all the Bitcoin block space with JPEGs. Yes, you heard that right, with NFTs. NFTs are now part of Bitcoin, and it's through this brand new protocol called Ordinals, which is doing some interesting stuff with Bitcoin block space. And it has caused a bunch of controversy as to whether or not this is a legitimate use case of Bitcoin. Is that even a fair thing to charge an app with being illegitimate? Some people think that this is spamming the Bitcoin blockchain. Other people think that this is just what you're allowed to do with Bitcoin. If you pay the Bitcoin fee, then you're able to get into the Bitcoin blockchain. There's been some other conversations as well as what can you do with NFTs on Bitcoin? Is this really anything useful or is this just a place to put monkey pictures on Bitcoin? Did you know, Bankless listener, that you can actually run Doom on Bitcoin? And I actually do play a little bit of Doom live here on the show. My two guests are Casey Rotemore, who is the creator of Ordinals, this protocol that is filling up Bitcoin block space with JPEGs, and also, and also my good friend Eric Wall, who is somebody that I frequently tap into in order to get help navigating the Bitcoin world, because as, of course, I don't pay nearly as much attention to Bitcoin as I do with Ethereum, and just the way that Bitcoin works is fundamentally different than how Ethereum works. So I'm bringing in Eric Wall as a technical co-host, co-moderator to help me guide through this conversation with Casey you <laughs> In this conversation, we talk about how ordinals work, how NFTs even come to be on Bitcoin. We talk about some of the reactions from the Bitcoin community. While some leaders are offended, most people are actually more okay with it than what might let on. And actually, Eric walks us through about how this new use case for Bitcoin is perhaps bringing a sustainable fee market to buying Bitcoin block space. While it actually doesn't blow Bitcoin, actually makes it even more stream. So we actually perhaps get a win-win where Bitcoin can actually become more sustainable due to block space demand because of ordinals, because of NFTs on Bitcoin, while also making the Bitcoin blockchain easier to process. How do we get this win-win? Eric Wall walks us through that and more. And of course, we poke fun at some Bitcoin fundamentalists, a hobby as old as time on the bankless program. But first, before we get to all of these conversations, we have to talk to our friends at MetaMask. And MetaMask has built out this brand new educational platform, which they're calling MetaMask Learn. You can go there and check it out at learn.metamask.io. But it is an interactive course for you to learn about Web3. Through MetaMask Learn, you can do things like be guided through how to set up your MetaMask wallet, but also learn about core basic crypto principles. Like what is Web3? What does self custody even mean? What are NFTs? What is DeFi? What's digital identity? MetaMask has this very elaborate, highly engaging and interactive course that, again, you can find at learn.metaMask.io, and it can be a place if you don't want to teach your mom or dad about crypto, but they asked you, you can send them here. So you can offload them onto, again, learn.metaMask.io. So check that out. There is a link in the show notes if you want to get you or your family members or your loved ones or whoever asks what is that crypto thing, you can get them leveled up at MetaMask Learn. It's not often that we do Bitcoin content here on Bankless, but when something comes to my attention via crypto Twitter or whatnot about new utilities on Bitcoin that is external to the actual base Bitcoin protocol, yet it is still a valid purchasing of Bitcoin block space, I get really, really excited. I hope you're excited as well. Definitely pay attention and I definitely take some time at the very beginning of the show to really parse out these details. The way that Bitcoin is constructed, the philosophy behind Bitcoin is very different from Ethereum. Bitcoin and its soft forks, which we go through in this episode, Segwit, Taproot, they're actually about taking features away from Bitcoin, allowing for the second layer around Bitcoin, something like ordinals to be built upon Bitcoin. And so rather than hard forking features in, which is the Ethereum philosophy, Bitcoin hard forks take features out, but that still does enable some expressivity on higher order layers around Bitcoin. So definitely pay attention to the different philosophy behind these two systems. It is a topic of conversation that's always super interesting to me. And you can unpack some of the ways that Bitcoin is built differently. But of course, we are ultimately going to be talking about NFTs on Bitcoin and all the other second order consequences to that as well. So stay tuned for this great conversation with Eric and Casey. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible, especially Kraken, who is our strategic sponsor for 2023, because Kraken has been around for 11 years in the crypto space, and we expect them to be around for all the rest of the while as well. And so if you are using a centralized exchange to get your boomer money into the crypto world, make sure you are using a centralized exchange that is going to be around for the long term. And that is why Bankless has partnered with Kraken in 2023 for our strategic sponsor. And you're going to hear from them right now. Kraken has been a leader in the crypto industry for the last 12 years. Dedicated to accelerating the global adoption of crypto, Kraken puts an emphasis on security, transparency and client support, which is why over 9 million clients have come to love Kraken's products. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, the Kraken UX is simple, intuitive and frictionless, making the Kraken app a great place for all to get involved and learn about crypto. For those with experience, the redesigned Kraken Pro app and web experience is completely customizable to your trading needs, integrating key trading features into one seamless interface. Kraken has a 24-7, 365 client support team that is globally recognized. Kraken support is available wherever, whenever you need them, by phone, chat, or email. And for all of you NFTers out there, the brand new Kraken NFT beta platform gives you the best NFT trading experience possible. Rarity rankings, no gas fees, and the ability to buy an NFT straight with cash. Does your crypto exchange prioritize its customers the way that Kraken does? And if not, sign up with Kraken at Kraken dot com slash bankless. Hey Bankless Nation, if you're listening to this, it's because you're on the free Bankless RSS feed. Did you know that there's an ad-free version of Bankless that comes with the Bankless Premium subscription? No ads, just straight to the content. But that's just one of many things that a Premium subscription gets you. There's also the Token Report, a monthly bullish, bearish, neutral report on the hottest tokens of the month. And the regular updates from the Token Report go into the Token Bible, your first stop shop for every token worth investigating in crypto. Bankless Premium also gets you a 30 discount to the permissionless conference which means it basically just pays for itself there's also the airdrop guide to make sure you don't miss a drop in 2023 but really the best part about bankless premium is hanging out with me Ryan and the rest of the bankless team in the inner circle discord only for premium members want the alpha check out Ben the Analyst's degen pit where you can ask him questions about the token report got a question I've got my own Q&A room for any questions that you might have. At Bankless, we have huge things planned for 2023, including a new website with login with your Ethereum address capabilities, and we're super excited to ship what we are calling Bankless 2.0 Soon TM. So if you want extra help exploring the frontier, subscribe to Bankless Premium. It's under 50 cents a day and provides a wealth of knowledge and support on your journey west. I'll see you in the Discord. The Phantom wallet is coming to Ethereum. The number one wallet on Solana is bringing its millions of users and beloved UX to Ethereum and Polygon. If you haven't used Phantom before, you've been missing out. Phantom was one of the first wallets to pioneer Solana staking inside the wallet and will be offering similar staking features for Ethereum and Polygon. But that's just staking. Phantom is also the best home for your NFTs. Phantom has a complete set of features to optimize your NFT experience. Pin your favorites, hide your uglies, burn the spam, and also manage your NFT Sale listings from inside the wallet. Phantom is, of course, a multi-chain wallet, but it makes chain management easy, displaying your transactions in a human-readable format with automatic warnings for malicious transactions or phishing websites. Phantom has already saved over 20,000 users from getting scammed or hacked. So get on the Phantom waitlist and be one of the first to access the multi-chain beta. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to phantom.app/waitlist to get access in late February. Bankless Nation, I want to introduce you to Casey Rodemer. Casey is an open source Bitcoin developer who is building Ordinals, which has caused a little bit of a stir in the Bitcoin community, but overall, a bunch of conversations as to what's going on in this small corner of Bitcoin, which has now been the host of many cool NFTs. At least I think they're cool. Other people don't. And also joined with me is Eric Wall, who is my substitute teacher for Ryan Sean Adams when we need to talk about Bitcoin and all things technical Bitcoin. So Eric is going to help me guide us through this conversation as probably one of the most knowledgeable people about Bitcoin and other related
1: technologies. Casey and Eric, welcome to Bankless, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's awesome to be here. Awesome to be able to talk to your viewers. So yeah, thanks so much.
2: Always a pleasure, David.
0: All right, so let's get this thing kicked off. This has created a bunch of hubbub in the Bitcoin world, but I want to start first and foremost with just diving into ordinals specifically. Mm-hmm. So Casey, can you just walk us through ordinals? What's ordinals?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of two layers to the whole thing. There's the base layer, which is this thing called ordinals. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, there are inscriptions, which are the NFTs. So ordinals are a convention, essentially, for numbering individual Bitcoin Satoshis. So they have a unique individual identity, every single Satoshi, and tracking them across transactions as they are spent. Mm. It doesn't require any changes to Bitcoin. It doesn't actually take up any data on the base layer And it is purely an opt-in convention. It doesn't really affect Bitcoin fungibility, which is often a question that I get asked. It's just a convention for people who want to participate in it, like a lens that you can choose to see the same data that everybody else is seeing, Mm. but with these additional Satoshi identifiers and tracking. So this was created. I created it, although there was actually a Bitcoin forum talk post in 2012 that I found after I came up with it with exactly the same scheme. So I think it's actually kind of like a very natural extension of Bitcoin that when you think about it, everything kind of falls into place. So, but then those ordinal numbers or trackable Satoshis or whatever, those can be used to sort of contain content or be assigned an NFT. And this is called inscriptions, which is sort of a top layer. So an inscription is just a piece of content that is included in a Bitcoin transaction in a part of the transaction called the witness, and that content is arbitrary. The content model is very similar to the web containing a content type, which is a string that identifies what kind of content it is, and a body, which are just content bytes. That's included in the witness in a Bitcoin transaction. And then the inscription is made on the first sat of the first output of that transaction sort of creating this digital artifact, which is then transferred using the ordinal protocol or ordinal theory when I'm being cute. Yeah, it creates these things. I like to call them digital artifacts because the term NFT is very overloaded and refers to a lot of different things. And I think these have very unique properties that people who collect NFTs will like. But yeah, that's the basic idea. And
0: just to make it crystal clear, from the Ethereum perspective, when you create an NFT, you're actually creating a digital object on Ethereum, an actual token. That's not what's being created on Bitcoin. Is it the actual individual Satoshi that is the transferable unit that is what we are kind of colloquially calling NFT. You said you are assigning a lifespan to an individual Satoshi. That's right. And then the Satoshi has data appended to it. And these two properties together start to appear to look and feel like the NFTs that we know on Ethereum.
1: Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, things are NFTs which have certain properties that users are looking for. They want them to be unique. They want them to be transferable. They want them to have a piece of content associated with them. So I think whether or not these are NFTs is sort of up for everybody to decide according to their own Mm -hmm. definition of what an NFT is. But yeah, that's correct. Essentially, the sats are already the tokens, and they're sort of, Mm -hmm. on the Bitcoin base layer, they are very fungible. If you view them through the lens of the Ordinal's Protocol, they become Mm non-fungible. And if you then additionally use inscriptions and have like an inscription wallet or an inscription explorer. So the open source tool, which is the wallet and the explorer that I wrote with additional contributors is called Ord and the block explorer is on ordinals.com. And so if you're using that tool, then you can see the individual sats, you can see where they are and you can see the content that is associated with them. So yeah, and then that behaves like an NFT. You can create content that is then in your wallet, and then you can send it on to others.
0: The way that you're articulating this, I think, is diving into a particular philosophy that Bitcoin has, where from the Bitcoin blockchain perspective, it doesn't know what Is going on with the ordinals, but then you use this word from the ordinal lens, as in you actually have to opt into looking at Bitcoin through this particular protocol called ordinals. And then all of a sudden this NFT expression is able to become out of that through NFTs, but like a normal Bitcoin node doesn't actually know what the hell is going on here. And Erica, this is where I want to turn to you. And maybe you can help us tell this story. When did this feature... Some Bitcoiners might call it a bug, but I'll call it a feature. When did this feature become like a possible in the Bitcoin blockchain? And can you kind of help just articulate this difference in vision of how the Bitcoin protocol works, which is what more bankless audience might be used to with the Ethereum world?
2: Yeah, so creating different clients that interpret what is going on inside the Bitcoin blockchain and sort of building meta protocols on top of the Bitcoin blockchain has existed for a long time. Like Omni is such an example, which is the first place where USDT Tether made their stable coins, master coin and counterparty are also such protocols. The thing with ordinals and especially in how the inscription part is made leverages taproot. Mm. So we've always been able to embed arbitrary data inside the Bitcoin blockchain using op return, but it was limited to, I think 80 bytes. So. To the extent that it's been possible to create a protocol that embeds arbitrary data on Bitcoin, that's always been possible. It just became, with Taproot, it became significantly simpler to do that in single transactions to embed sizable sums of data in a single transaction. So it's always been possible to create like an NFT layer on Bitcoin. It already exists, like Rare Pepe exists on Counterparty Mm. on Bitcoin already today. It just, now you can make much larger content types due to certain limits that were removed in taproot script versus regular segregated witness scripts. I don't know if I'm explaining that in the most simple way, but the way that you can think about it is that it was always possible to embed arbitrary data into Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And then in 2017, segregated witness came and we got this extra chunk up to four megabytes of witness data could now be assigned to Bitcoin blocks. However, in individual transactions, there were still limits to how much data you could put into individual transactions. After Taproot happened, you could basically make a single transaction that takes up the entirety of an entire block. So Ordinals sort of just leverages Taproot to create a more user-friendly experience of a more easily buildable and toolable NFT system for Bitcoin.
0: And the language you're using, like Bitcoin got Segwit, then it got Taproot. If you come from this from an Ethereum perspective, you probably think these are hard forks, but they're not. They're soft forks. Eric, can you kind of walk us through it feels like we're adding something to Bitcoin when we add SegWit. Is that really the right perspective to take? And how when we already have like this capability to put NFTs on Bitcoin, but then Taproot happened and now we have more of this ability. Can you kind of just walk us through how to think about this?
2: Yeah, so a hard fork is an expansion Mm -hmm. of the consensus rules. A soft fork is a contraction Mm -hmm. of the consensus rules. But even though that we're contracting the consensus rules, when you're contracting, it does actually mean that you can attach extra rules that need to be validated. So all the previous rules, you need to validate them, but now you need to validate extra rules. So actually the validity space is shrinking Mm -hmm. when you're soft forking. And because you're adding extra rules to validate, that also means that you can add extra functionality so you can actually increase the block size through a soft fork and add new types of scripting features inside of Bitcoin using soft forks.
0: And so now there's like the, and maybe there always was, but there's like This two parts of Bitcoin block space and this part is kind of fuzzy for me where there's like the normal I make a Bitcoin transaction and that data goes into one part of Bitcoin. And then there's this other part of Bitcoin, which I think Taproot really unlocked, which is where this NFT data is going into. Can you also walk us through that?
2: Actually, the other part of the uh, Bitcoin data was unlocked in 2017 with segregated Mm, witness. Segregated witness stands for like segregating the witness data. And witness data is a strange word, but the easiest way to think about it is maybe like signatures on transactions are witnesses. So in 2017, we wanted to increase the block size of Bitcoin. There was a big political push to increase the block size limit of Bitcoin. But we only really increased it for this witness data, these signatures. And the reason for that is that it's, okay to have much more witness data in bitcoin because after you validated a signature you know that a transaction is valid and now you don't actually need to keep it on your full node anymore because you have validated you can just say okay i know that this transaction was valid i validated the signature but after you validated the signature it doesn't really serve a purpose on your node anymore so you can throw it away therefore the witness part of the data on the blockchain got segregated out from the regular data and the big change here was that because this data can be pruned on full nodes without it stopping being a full node, we changed how much it cost to embed such data into the blockchain. So now there's a four X discount for this type of witness data. So it's four times cheaper where you have something called a virtual byte. So even if you put a hundred kilobyte file in the witness data of Bitcoin, it's going to get counted as if it's 25 kilobytes Mm. because we discount, that's why it's called a SegWit discount. We discount how much that data actually counts for because it's not necessarily going to be on all full nodes forever. So we can allow that portion of the data to grow faster. So it's kind of like for an Ethereum, I would say like, it's kind of like blob space, you know, it's this part of the data, you know, in Ethereum with EIP 4844, we allow the block size of Ethereum to grow rapidly because that block space that we're increasing, it has nothing to do with execution. We're not validating that to any extent. It's just raw data. And also it's getting thrown away. It's auto pruned every two weeks. Mm. This witness data in Bitcoin is not auto pruned necessarily, but you can manually prune it. So in that way, it is sort of similar to blob space Mm. in Ethereum.
0: Right. And it's really that the economic cost that's lowered that really unlocks the ability to more viably embed data into the chain. And I think, Casey, that's where Ordinal's really has carved out its spot in the Bitcoin world, which is like, oh, there's this data that we can take advantage of that's cheaper than the rest of the data and that lets us do things. Casey, this seems to have been always been possible as soon as we had SegWit. When did the idea for ordinals come into your brain?
1: Yeah, there are actually some other important advantages of ordinals that we can get into. Mm -hmm. But just to say them really quick, it's that because the ordinals protocol can these like made up stats can be stored in normal Bitcoin addresses and transacted with normal Bitcoin transactions, and kind of sit in normal Bitcoin UTXOs, it means that there doesn't need to be a parallel infrastructure entirely for wallets and services. The Ord utility, it uses the Rust Bitcoin library, which is a great just sort of standard Bitcoin library for its transaction construction and signing. And it also uses Bitcoin Core as the backend for its wallet for a lot of transaction, also some transaction construction and signing. And so I think that's another one of the big advantages is that it integrates a little bit more cleanly into Bitcoin. But yeah, that was an awesome summary by Eric. Everything totally, completely accurate. And yeah, like, so I started thinking about this in early 2022. I've done some generative art and I sort of saw that, you know, when NFTs got popular in 2017, I wasn't super interested. I just didn't see anything that really spoke to me or anything that like I could, you know, contribute to as a creator. But then when I saw really, really cool algorithmic and generative NFTs start to get really popular, I thought, like, man, like, it would be awesome to be able to, like, make these myself. And I think I actually, I wrote a test ERC721 contract, but for a variety of reasons, I didn't really feel like the tooling didn't strike me as very good. There are some sort of technical issues. So, like, every NFT on Ethereum is a separate smart contract. And so technically they can kind of have different properties. You need to audit them for security, for immutability. You need to audit them for where the content is stored. Some of them are, you know, totally secure, totally immutable, no backdoor keys and content is stored on the Ethereum blockchain. Sort of going down in the tiers of like desirability for most collectors, you know, then there's things that are on IPFS, which are stored by hash. But IPFS is basically like BitTorrent, and people can stop seeding content at any time. Systems like Arweave, you know, I don't want to get too mean or controversial or anything, but I'm not convinced by the economic incentives of those systems. And so as a result, I just sort of felt like I couldn't really be comfortable. Like I could make NFTs on Ethereum, but I couldn't necessarily be comfortable like, encouraging people to buy them and so i looked for a way to do it
0: and that's just because the assurances that the data of the nft could not be completely fulfilled because ethereum couldn't host enough of that data
1: um so i could have put the data on chain sure
0: but that's really expensive right
1: i could have made a contract without any upgrade keys i would have been a little bit unhappy having people like have to audit the code The way that NFTs are commonly sold on Ethereum, and like I'm fuzzy on this, so correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, when you sell an NFT on OpenSea, you give OpenSea permission to transfer your NFTs. So that being the standard by which NFTs are traded, also not very enthusiastic. It really wasn't any one thing, it was just sort of a, you know, loose collection Mm -hmm. of concerns. Mm -hmm. So then I, you know, I'm a Bitcoin developer. I used to be a Bitcoin core. Contributor, although I'm honestly not exactly comfortable calling myself like a Bitcoin core dev because that was a very minor one And that was a long time ago. And so I started to look for a way to do this on Bitcoin So in early 2022, I just started noodling and one technical difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that Bitcoin uses the UTXO model so a wallet is just kind of these collection of coins and These coins, you know, they don't have any like permanent identity They just kind of get created and then destroyed. And so for something like an NFT protocol where NFTs are like permanent and they don't just go away when you like spend them, you know, they have to be transferable. That's when I started noodling on this like ordinals thing, this low level, this like trackable Sats, And I didn't know how exactly I was going to write the NFT part of the protocol. But yeah, so noodled on that for a long time. And when I came up with the idea of making Sats trackable by this pretty simple algorithm. It's basically just you have these sats on the input and you have the sats on the outputs. And then you imagine that they just move in a straight line across. Mm -hmm. The first sat of the first output is going to the first sat of the first input. Anything extra goes to fees and appears out of the Coinbase reward. And once I had that, like all the pieces kind of came together very quickly. And so started writing an index initially, which could just track these sat locations and see if this algorithm was essentially tractable to use at all. And then um, started working on inscriptions, which is the sort of assigning content. Like Eric said, it's always been possible to store arbitrary content on Bitcoin. It's just been inconvenient, you know, OpReturn has this size limit. You could do it in pay to script hash, but there are these standardness limits. You could do it in SegWit scripts in the witness, but there are these weird standardness limits there too. And then Taproot, which I think went live at the end of 2021 that basically just removed all those standardness restrictions which actually had not been there to specifically prevent arbitrary data from being published on the chain there were actually things like you know if you're constructing a transaction you don't want to run into one of these weird restrictions that all of a sudden makes your transaction like non-standard and can't be relayed so yeah and then so the came up with the construction for putting the content in the witness which is just a sort of like an op false op if and then a bunch of data pushes and an op end if, and that makes all the data pushes between the op if and the op end if just get ignored. Mm-hmm. So from Bitcoin's point of view, it's a no op. Yeah. And then, you know, come up with the assignment algorithm and the wallet and the block explorer where you can actually view these things. So yeah, that is the rough timeline. And then I think we did a signet release in like November of last year and we got a lot of good testers and a lot of use. And then we did a mainnet release, I think it was January 20th of this year, 2023. And then like things just went absolutely insane. Like it's been absolute madness, (laughs) absolute chaos. And I think part of the reason, like lots of memes, lots of Pepes. And one of the reasons that there's been so much chaos is is additionally because of this controversy, Mm -hmm. you know, should Bitcoin be used this way? Is the discount unfair? Is this an attack vector on Bitcoin? Is this an exploit? Like all this drama Mm -hmm. has certainly propelled the project into the public eye.
0: Yeah, certainly. And I think that's where I kind of want to turn the conversation to next. But one last question, just to really clarify this. When you made Ordinals, the intent was to be utility for art, right? Like it was an art-based project?
1: Yeah, that's 100% correct. And actually, the Ordinals protocol could be used for fungible tokens, Mm -hmm. you know, for Mm ERC-20 style tokens. But it's actually not very good for that. It's pretty Mm -hmm. weird. It has a lot of weird details of how it works. I think you could do that. And if it gets really popular, it's actually can be a convenient way to do that. One nice thing is actually you can do these protocols Mm semi-privately. So you and your friends can elect to give special meaning Mm -hmm. to some of these sats and then track how they move. But then that Special meaning doesn't need to be published to the chain, and you can all sort of agree the sat ranges that you care about and where they are without having to reveal anything to the world. But to answer your question, yeah, like I don't really consider myself an artist. I make like programmer art, but yeah, it was really focused on how to do art and how to do this like NFT use case, yeah.
0: So this is where I want to zoom out and get into the mindset of a Bitcoiner or the various flavors of Bitcoiners that you see out there. And so this is where I want to turn back to Eric and unpack this story a little bit. We'll talk about to what degree this is offensive to all Bitcoiners or like how many of Bitcoiners are offended by this. But Eric, putting your offended Bitcoiner hat on, how does this violate Bitcoiner philosophy? And can you just like tell the story?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's pretty easy for me to express that because when I originally discovered the ordinal system, I myself thought that this doesn't sound like such a great idea. I had to think about it for two days until I came to the conclusion why it's not a bad idea. But the way to think about it is that like we've had issues with uh, people trying to build non-financial use cases on top of Bitcoin since forever. And one thing that you can sort of Think about like, why would that be undesirable? Well, if you think about board ape drops mm. on Ethereum and it just causes these fee surges, like that's one of the kind of problems that you have when there's demand for your block space that isn't tied to this financial use case.
0: So instead of us transferring ether, paying each other with money, doing finance stuff, we're doing monkey pictures and that is crowding out the finance stuff. That's what you're trying to say?
2: Yeah, it's causing volatility in the system that is not as predictable as the financial aspects of it. But even Satoshi was initially thinking about creating ENS type systems on top of Bitcoin and it was called BitDNS. And then I think it was Satoshi who decided that actually let's create another coin for it instead, let's create Namecoin. Hmm. And then we've been trying to create all these drive chains and side chains to Bitcoin so that we wouldn't have all this type of activity on top of Bitcoin just to keep the Bitcoin protocol as uncomplex and as unencumbered by other incentives going on in the system because we sort of think that Bitcoin is too complex as it already is. But the reason that I didn't like ordinals or inscriptions especially, actually I think ordinals are kind of cool. I think one thing that you describe very well on your blog, Casey, and that Dennis describes on his blog also very well is that, you know, if you have a bunch of stocks in your brokerage account, they look completely fungible in your brokerage account. But depending on, you know, you have this first in first out principle, and that's how the taxman decides how much tax you pay based on like, are you selling the ones that you bought first or are you, so there's queuing systems and there's just ways to think about like all your stocks stacked together. And are you taking it from the top of the stack or the bottom of the stack? That's sort of a great way to understand the ordinal system that I think you described on your blog pretty well. But the reason that I didn't like inscriptions and inscriptions to just repeat what Casey said, inscriptions are the part when you embed these data blobs that are attached to specific
1: satoshis
2: that are getting tracked in the
1: system. So-called because you're inscribing, quote unquote, the sat.
2: Yeah. And I suppose the thing that I didn't like is that, so I've grown over the years to actually appreciate NFTs a lot on Ethereum. And one of the things that I really do appreciate with NFTs on Ethereum is that you can create these types of arbitrary complex auction logics, minting rules. And right now, for example, I'm doing one NFT project where I'm implementing a Harburger tax, which is like pretty amazing and undiscovered way of controlling ownership and incentivizing churn
1: harbinger taxes are sick the economists love them man
2: yeah and you can do that on ethereum but i don't think that you can do that with ordinals inscription nfts so i kind of thought that bitcoin even though you can make nfts on bitcoin the things that i like about nfts are these programmable parts to it that make them you know potentially more interesting so I thought you know even though you can do it on Bitcoin I mean we should probably still be doing NFTs on Ethereum and therefore I don't like that NFTs are now taking up space on Bitcoin but I came to a different conclusion maybe I don't want to take up too much time going through how my own thought process went like maybe we can go back to that but I've since then come to the conclusion that actually ordinals are not bad for Bitcoin. If you want me to dig into it, I'm just going to sort of stop here and give you a chance to interrupt.
1: Yeah,
0: Casey, if you have any thoughts, go for it. I have a a few more other topics I want to get to first before we get to that part of
1: No, totally, totally fair. And yeah, it's true. Like the programmability of inscriptions and ordinals is, is very limited. I'm, you know, like you can't just write arbitrary code and deploy it. And I'm, you know, I'm working on, for example, like a trustless swap, which would let you do sort of these like trustless trades. And then I have to like, figure out how I can like line up the inputs and the outputs and use the different SIG hash flags to like get this very simple functionality working. So I'd say, you know, inscriptions probably occupy like a distinct market segment, you know, where they're not programmable. And so there are lots of things you can't do. I'm really stoked to see how the harbinger tax goes. That's something I've been thinking about for NFTs. And like, I just think it's awesome for people to start experimenting with things that are, you know, more incentive compatible, you know?
0: The philosophy that I've gathered is that there's this word that's gone around there, illegitimate Bitcoin transactions, as in, this is not legitimate. And uh, I can't remember who it was, it was another Bitcoin leader is like...
2: It was Dennis, uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Porto?
1: Porto? Porto. Mm. Porto. (laughs) français.
2: It's Dennis, anyway. He wrote the blog post on Ordinal's that got me, you know, up to speed and interested mm-hmm. in it. So that's sort of why, you know, I jumped in and started to transfer my Trump NFT cards onto the ordinal inscription systems. And instead. that was a
1: big early inscription. That was a big mm. boy. I noticed it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was the same guy. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, Casey, but what I heard is that the guy who made inscription number one, which is a dick butt, is someone who looked at the ordinal system when it was sort of in. Beta, maybe on Signet, and just hard forked it and deployed it on mainnet without you being ready for it. And then he made a dick butt on mainnet using the ordinal system. So that was the same guy. Yeah. Yeah. That was the same guy that made the Trump NFT card for me using the ordinal system. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. No,
1: yeah, that's roughly true. It kind of didn't need any changes to be on Signet versus mainnet. It kind of worked with both. But we had this artificial limitation in the client that if you tried to run out on mainnet, it would complain. Because we didn't want people creating inscriptions that might get invalidated if we changed the protocol. Luckily, we never needed to change anything that would invalidate an old inscription, so all inscriptions that have been made on mainnet are valid and will continue to be valid. But yeah, so I made a test inscription to see how it works, and I was like, okay. And then like immediately, like, dick butt. Like, um, <laughs> game developers have this term, it's uh, TTP, which stands for time to penis. <laughs> and basically, it's the time between when a user like downloads or installs your game for the first time to the point that they (laughs) can make another user look at a penis or penis like object, you know, and the ordinals, the inscriptions TTP, (laughs) catastrophically low, instruction number one, second one is a dick butt.
2: We have to give a shout out to the guy who did it. His Twitter handle is rot 13 maxi
1: He's a G. He's awesome. Yeah, super great (laughs) guy. Yeah.
0: I agree. So the Bitcoiner philosophy a Bitcoiner philosophy is that we want Bitcoin to only be about money. Monetary premium, monetary premium, monetary premium. And so that's what Bitcoin block space is preserved for. And if you put anything else in the Bitcoin blockchain that's not about transferring Bitcoins or using BTC as money, that's like quote unquote illegitimate. And I wanted to pause and camp on this legitimate word to you, Eric, what makes a legitimate Bitcoin transaction? And is this even a fair question to ask? Yeah, I think that you have the
1: question
2: slightly misframed because the thing that Bitcoin maximists have been saying is that actually financial transactions are the most economically dense type of activity mm. that will just bully everything else out, which isn't actually, necessarily true. I mean, we have Hmm. one Satoshi per byte fees, like the minimum possible and it's all financial transactions. And now the fees are actually going up and it's because of these uh, uh, dickbutt pictures are actually finally, you know, it might be possible that the dickbutts are saving the security budget problem for Bitcoin. <laughs> like the dickbutts dick may, may actually make it so that we don't need to increase the number of coins in Bitcoin, so uh, they may save the, the problem, like dickbutts could be the solution, but some Bitcoiners are currently like really don't want that kind of stuff because they believe that it's going to weigh down the chain and fill it with nonsensical data, which is actually also an increase. Correct interpretation of what the long-term consequences of ordinal inscriptions actually will be, in my opinion. And I think Casey also echoes this: that when we're talking about Bitcoiners and their, you know, distaste for ordinals and inscriptions, I actually did go to one of my, you know, most one of the maxis that hates me basically. (laughs) And I said, you know, why don't you go to your community and just do a poll and see what do you think? Like, what do you think about the ordinals inscriptions? And it wasn't like 90% hated ordinals or anything. Actually 50% of people said if they pay the fee, it's fine. Hmm. You know, a lot of Bitcoiners are libertarians. Maybe you could argue that Taproot made it very easy to embed arbitrary data onto Bitcoin sort of like a mistake. You have Luke Jr, for example, saying that people are lying and tricking the code because if you look at how Casey is inscribing data into these blocks, he's using this tap script, which is basically like you have opcodes and he has one opcode that says OP false. And that means that when that transaction is executing, the Bitcoin node doesn't actually even look at, it doesn't even actually execute the opcodes that comes after uh, OP false. So you can put tons of chunks in there. And also Casey, you said that there are no restrictions or limitation whatsoever in taproot. That is not like necessarily true. There are still like a thousand elements on the stack that that's a limit. And then there's also a 52 byte limit of each element, but you can circumvent that because of the OP false opcode. You know, I'm going into the <laughs> things that people are not gonna understand. Let's go, because let's of the, go. Because of the OP false opcode, Bitcoin doesn't even look at all the other stuff that's going on inside of that TAP script. So none of the other limits are actually triggered. So in my opinion, it is kind of an exploit in some way, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, so almost totally correct. Like, it's actually a 520 byte limit to each push, and it applies even to unexecuted pushes. So that's why the body of a inscription, like the inscription content, is chunked into 520 chunk pieces and then concatenated. And the 10,000 stack limit, that's also like just for the depth of the stack at any one time, like after an opcode. So yeah, it is a hack. Yeah. And then there is the standardness limit, which is why, you know, the main block, that massive single inscription block, which I was very surprised to see so soon. I was like, maybe that'll happen eventually, but not now. You're
2: talking about the four megabyte block that happened that had to be in collaboration with the miner, right? Because you can't broadcast those transactions on
0: Bitcoin
1: directly. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uniswap is the largest on-chain marketplace for self-custody digital assets. Uniswap is, of course, a decentralized exchange, but you know this because you've been listening to Bankless. But did you know that the Uniswap web app has a shiny new fiat on-ramp. Now you could go directly from fiat in your bank to tokens in DeFi inside of Uniswap. Not only that, but Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism Layer 2s are supported right out of the gate. But that's just DeFi. Uniswap is also an NFT aggregator, letting you find more listings for the best prices across the NFT world. With Uniswap, you can sweep floors on multiple NFTs and Uniswap's universal router will optimize your gas fees for you. Uniswap is making it as easy as possible to go from bank account to bankless assets across ethereum and we couldn't be more thankful for having them as a sponsor so go to app.uniswap.org today to buy sell or swap tokens and nfts Arbitrum 1 is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum 1, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum 1 and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive How many total airdrops have you gotten? This last bull market had a ton of them. Did you get them all? Maybe you missed one. So here's what you should do. Go to Earnify and plug in your Ethereum wallet and Earnify will tell you if you have any unclaimed airdrops that you can get. And it also does PoApps and Mintable NFTs. Any kind of money that your wallet can claim, Earnify will tell you about it. And you should probably do it now because some airdrops expire. And if you sign up for Earnify, they'll email you anytime one of your wallets has a new airdrop for it to make sure that you never lose an airdrop ever again. You can also upgrade to Earnify Premium to unlock access to airdrops that are beyond the basics and are able to set reminders for more wallets. And for just under $21 a month, it probably pays for itself with just one airdrop. So plug in your wallets at Earnify and see what you get. That's E-A-R-N-I dot F-I.
1: And make sure you never lose another airdrop. One interesting thing is actually, it looks like the op-false, op-if construction was actually anticipated by some of the authors of SegWit because they didn't want you using op-push, op-drop, I think, which would be another way of pushing data and then, you know, removing it from the script so that it doesn't do anything. So one dev actually commented that when they were thinking about it, that like up false up if would be the preferred way to stick data in. Now that's not an endorsement. Well, I think it's a hack in the sense of like a weird technical thing that is a little inelegant, not really in the sense of hacking it and an exploit. I don't know, that's up to it's up to the Bitcoin community to decide.
2: Well, Luke Jr. says that you lie, then you trick the code. So, I mean... That's that... right, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> That's okay, I'll just go to a priest and say some Hail Marys or something, and then no, hopefully uh, it'll yeah, be
2: okay. said that every time you make an inscription, you have to apologize to your node. <laughs> so there are those kinds of people. But to get back to the point is that 50% of even, you know, the people that follow, yeah. you know, hardcore maxis, are libertarian and think that, you know, if these are the consensus rules that we all agreed to, then let people use that block space. So I don't actually think that there is a majority Mm. consensus for soft forking away this Tapscript functionality or Tapscript exploit or however you want to call it. The thing that made NFTs, big NFTs possible on Bitcoin. I don't think that there's consensus for that. I actually think that the most of the Bitcoiners in this case are actually they have a fairly reasonable take. The only problem is that the sort of the high priests that we all have come to trust and respect in Bitcoin, they've been very loud and saying like, we should work with the miners and come up with ways to censor this. So they're giving all Bitcoiners a very bad look. But the Bitcoiners underneath that, they're starting to see now actually that some of these people that we've respected for a long time in Bitcoin can have pretty, you know, not completely thought out ideas. I need to back that statement up a little bit by also explaining why I don't think that NFTs on Bitcoin are such a bloaty problem in order to make people understand why I say that. But that's going to take me like five minutes to explain. So I'll pause again and leave the word to you guys.
1: Yeah, that's totally right. And it's like I help run a Bitcoin meetup in SF that meets once a month. Tons of Bitcoiners show up. I go to a bunch of local Bay Area Bitcoin meetup events and like Most Bitcoiners think it's super fun. I mean, when I say most Bitcoiners, I'm just saying like the slice of Bitcoiners that I interact with in real life. They think it's fun or they don't really care. They're like, okay, whatever. You know, people are going to do things with Bitcoin that I like don't really care about. And so, yeah, it's been just a few, you know, well, I don't know a few. many people have been upset, but it's been, you know, one sort of weird maxi contingent, the toxic maxi contingent And a lot of, like you said, a lot of very weird takes from people who I feel like should kind of know better. Like, I mean, like the miners should censor it is like kind of weird because one would think that miners would be incentivized to include such transactions and collect the fees. And then miners sort of attempting to set a higher fee rate for certain transactions implies a level of, if you just try to do it naively, it implies a a certain level of collusion between miners to agree to enforce this policy and essentially not undercut each other by doing this. So yeah, it just goes to show that like the Bitcoin community is hopefully diverse, hopefully fractured. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have a lot of different opinions.
2: And I'll offer a prediction on top of that, which is that if you can make a full block, like a four megabyte NFT, which we've seen, the one we saw was 3.2. 94 megabytes that we
1: saw. Yeah, I noticed it had a few extra transactions in it. I was like, guys, come on, you gotta make it the whole block.
2: (laughs) I think in this case, you know, they were probably trying to get there first. And also, if you look in a block explorer, you can sort of see how this giant ordinal inscription just squeezes these tiny, tiny others. So maybe they did it to just show the scale, (laughs) just show like, this is how big- Banana for uh, scale kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, maybe that's why they
0: did it. Well, I'm gonna share my screen here so we can actually look at some of the things that we're talking about here, because I got some tweets and some visualizations pulled up. This is what you were talking about, right, Eric, where we have this just massive block, yeah? Oh, yeah, 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 sorry, yeah, yeah. I was gonna make a prediction about this.
2: So yeah, if you look at that block, if you look at the fee, it says that it's zero Satoshi, like it doesn't, didn't pay any fee, that transaction. Mm-hmm. So why did a miner include it? Well, if you think about it, well, the miner, had to receive some, and this is actually good that the miner must have been paid out of band. So they got Mm. paid, you know, from the- Over the counter. They got paid in a different channel, just They probably said, you know, send some Bitcoiners to this wallet and we'll mine this huge ass NFT for you. And they had to go directly to the miner to make this happen because otherwise the standardness rules, the policy rules would have rejected it. So the miners are in a unique position where they can include these giant inscriptions that take up an entire blocks. And that's so special. That's such an exclusive thing that I think that this miner could have asked for you know a week ago people would pay in total in transaction fees like one thousand two hundred dollars and what do you think like if you're an ethereum project or an nft project and you want to make one block, one giant NFT, I think that you could charge for sure $10,000 for it, $20,000 for it. You could charge maybe $50,000 to put that in a single block. And if that's the case, if you put a huge transaction like this, and if you put also a giant transaction fee on top of it, then you actually screw up the game theory of the Bitcoin blockchain because these miners are going to start to reorg each other's blocks just to, to include the transaction, which is why it's much better that the people who do offer this payment for the inclusion. Of of the NFT they go directly to the miner they pay the miner here's the money because then like there's no point of reorging out that big NFT by another miner because it has zero satoshis per mm. byte so this is actually a game theoretically safer way to mm. include those large transactions and all the people that are saying now that You know, we have a four megabyte block and it pays almost nothing in fees. They just don't understand the relationships between the NFT artist and the miner, and that it has to be out of band to preserve the game theoretical properties of Bitcoin. And I think this this miner that did it, Luxor, they've just invented a new business model. There are going to be people that are lining up Mm. to get full block inscriptions. And they're going to be able to charge $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 per full block NFTs. And they're actually going to start to outcompete other miners because they're making so much more money while the other miners are making like $2,000, $3,000 per, per block in transaction fees. Luxor could make $20,000, dollars $40,000 per block. So the whole game, the entire game of Bitcoin mining has just changed forever with this. So congratulations, Casey. You just changed the game for Bitcoin.
1: (laughs) Wasn't expecting it to happen. Yeah, I think if this became common enough that certain miners were making more money, we'd have to think about like what is the game theory of that reorging and possibly consider lifting the 400,000 weight unit standardness limit so that these could just be in the mempool. Just because like it would mean that, well, like if some pool has 1% of the hash rate, maybe you won't bother trying to get them to accept your, you won't even go to them when you want to mine your 4 meg block. And so that would mean that the pools with more hash rate would maybe get a disproportionate amount of the revenue. Mm. And we probably don't want that. So it it might turn into a question of whether that 400,000 weight unit standardness rule is lifted so that these can just be in the normal mempool. And it's an interesting question about that reorg attack because it is true that very, very large transactions, not only that, they also create an all or nothing kind of situation where you can include that transaction Or you can include all the other transactions that are waiting. You have to select from both of them. So it reduces the cost a little bit of like kind of incentivizing miners to mine junk, you know. But yeah, many, many interesting questions. I can't believe that things are heating up like this.
0: The really interesting thing, I think, about this is, of course, the fee market and Bitcoin's sustainability model. Eric, you're talking about how like this fixes the fee market problem. Some Bitcoin maxis, the archetype of Bitcoin maxis that I have in my head actually deny the problem of the fee market in the first place. And so will this argument even work on them if they can't even admit that Bitcoin might not actually have a sustainable long-term security structure? Have you had any of these conversations?
2: I mean, I'll try to say this in the nicest way possible, but if you don't think that you need a fee market in order to incentivize the security of Bitcoin, I'm not sure if you're like qualified to participate in the conversation. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say it in a nicer way. Mm-hmm. That's like it's not a well reasoned argument that mm-hmm. I even feel like it has to be addressed. I don't know how you feel, Casey. Is there any way that you can steelman that argument that we don't need fees in Bitcoin? It'll be safe. I just don't understand how you're even supposed to understand such a weird argument.
1: Yeah, I think I can probably steelman like maybe like the most reasonable version of that is like well like there are a lot of low fee proof of work chains that like don't have much. Fees and like those don't seem to really get but they have
2: issuance. This is we're talking about post issuance So there's no
1: yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but that issuance is very um, I mean no fees the issuance is worth very little if it's you know some altcoin, but that is I don't really think that I can steal man this argument because like because the subsidy is declining It's getting cut in half every four years. It's gonna go to nothing faster than people think people say like oh You know, it's 120 years before we have to worry about the subsidy declining. Listen, in 120 years, for the last four years, the subsidy is going to be one sat per block. Like, this is not going to provide any security budget. Although, ordinals give sats names, A through Z, and the names get shorter as they go on. So, the last 26 sats to be mined will be Z through A. So, maybe that will help compensate (laughs) But assuming that people don't go crazy for like rare and exotic sats, yeah, we need a fee market. There's just no way that Bitcoin long-term can survive without a fee market. And you know, like anybody who's very religious kind of about anything, not to pick on religious, but if you're like a fundamentalist about something and you just think like Bitcoin is perfect and it does not have any problems and sort of you just deny any talk of problems. I mean, it's just not a constructive viewpoint that you can really engage with successfully. So this
0: all happened in this last month, which is crazy. This is one of the first, like, if you call this a Bitcoin app, Bitcoin apps that I've seen adopted so quickly, so just fervously. And we've already seen like the fees actually start to show up on Bitcoin, the additional block space demand. And so this is why this has captured mine and Ryan's attention. It's like, oh, like block space demand. That's, that's like block space demand is a paradigm that Ryan and I live by. Mm-hmm. And now I'm seeing this like have this use case on Bitcoin that's creating block space demand. But it's only been a month. You know, it's only been a month. Maybe this is just a flash in the pan. Maybe this is just like, hey, this is a fun meme. Let's put dick butts on Bitcoin. We can laugh about that. That's a good joke. Eric, how like sustainable do you think this is? Like, do you think like, yo, we've perhaps fixed the Bitcoin fee structure or is this like, eh, this is a more of a philosophical conversation at this point. We'll see how this plays out. Like kind of where are you on the spectrum of like how serious this is?
2: No, I mean, it's a 100% early days. We don't know how this is going to play out. I think that we've just added a new sort of natural source of demand for Bitcoin's block space. And I think that that's good. But the one thing that still irks me a little bit is that, I do think that Andrew Polstra had this mail on the Bitcoin mailing list where he warned about volatility, like transaction fee volatility. You know, we've already seen that scarcity pricing is a real thing. And even without NFTs, fees can go up and down extremely fast. So I think, you know, what it might actually accelerate is that Bitcoiners are thinking about actually, can we burn some of the transaction fees when the fees are really high and then just have like a constant low inflation. instead so we're sort of pushing ourselves through reinventing EIP 1559. <laughs> that might be the outcome. And that would be, I think, a better outcome than having no solution at all to the security budget problem. So more fees are definitely good if we can harmonize them over time. And we know from Ethereum that we can. I think that if we just figure out how to harmonize those fees that we are amassing through NFTs, then it's going to be a net good.
0: So if we keep on leaning into this maximum case scenario is every single block is four megabytes. Eric, you talked about how this actually doesn't present a bloat problem. Can you walk us through that?
2: Yeah. So this is actually kind of funny. I'll try to explain it in the, it's a pretty complicated topic to understand, but I'll I'll try to be pedagogical or I'll try to explain it in a simple way. So the first time that you hear about NFTs on Bitcoin, you're sort of like, (laughs) haha, NFTs on Bitcoin, that's dumb or that's funny. And then the next thought you have is probably NFTs shouldn't be on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is for transactions, right? And then the third thought that you have is actually, you know, It's not true that you can't really bloat the Bitcoin chain in any way because there are block size limits. Every block has a limit that we have agreed on that no matter how this block is filled, we are okay with this limit. Like that's what the block size limit is for. We set a block size limit so that over time the Bitcoin node wouldn't become unwieldy to sync so it's not a matter of you know weighing the Bitcoin blockchain down with all these NFTs. It's just a matter of what type of content are going to be inside of those blocks. So it's a matter of what type of content is inside of Bitcoin, not how much we're weighing it down. Okay, so now you've become a little bit smarter. You're understanding that we're not breaking the block size limit of Bitcoin or anything. Now you can have another thought, which is that actually though, when you're leveraging Tap script in this way that Casey has sort of invented, you this is pretty difficult to understand, but most Bitcoin blocks are not actually four megabytes. And it's not because there are not enough transactions, it's because only the witness data is allowed to fill out the block up to four megabytes. There's a base block in Bitcoin that has a one megabyte limit, and then the witness data has in total a four megabyte limit. So when you're doing cases thing inscriptions, then you can really max out these blocks because you're using the Tapscript witness data. So if people are doing inscriptions, it might become more common that we see four megabyte blocks. So now you're back to the idea that actually we are making the Bitcoin block heavier to download, but okay, so stay with me, try to follow me a little bit more, I'm soon done. So now the next realization that you're gonna have is that But what is the reason that witness data is cheaper on Bitcoin? There's actually a reason for that. And it's because witness data is something that after you validate it, you can throw it away. You can prune it. So it doesn't have to stay on the node forever. Now there's yet another thing in that context that you also have to think about, which is that there's something called assume valid. David, have you ever heard of assume valid?
0: Mm-mm. I mean, I know the op code, but like, I don't know what it does. Casey, do you know what assume valid is? Yep, yep, sure do. Okay, so assume valid
2: was a pretty controversial configuration setting that was, incorporated in Bitcoin core, not that many years ago, I think it was maybe like 2018 or something like that. Mm. What the assume valid option does, which is now the default in Bitcoin, is that when you're syncing a Bitcoin node for the first time, assume valid assumes that the signatures up until a certain block height are valid. So you download them, but you don't actually validate them. And then only after uh, a specific block, let's say halfway in, then you start to validate signatures. This is a way that they
0: sped up. It sounds like checkpointing.
2: It sounds like checkpointing, but it is different because it happens when Bitcoin Core releases new clients, mm. there's a new checkpoint inside that. Okay. So it doesn't come like, you know every 20th block it automatically checkpoints. Right. It comes from the release cycle, sure. which means that the developers are looking at which block are actually getting assumed valid in the config. But what we've noticed is that they manual checkpointing, So it's manual checkpointing by the, by the developers in the release cycle and then the people that it install.
1: Okay. For technical reasons, it's not quite checkpointing. Like I don't think that for example, Bitcoin core will neglect another valid chain because it does not have the checkpointed block, for example. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So it's more of a soft checkpoint. And also it still checks that all the balances and stuff like that adds up. It just skips the signature validation. So assume valid is much safer sort of than a checkpoint. However, they keep moving this assume valid checkpoint or whatever you want to call it forward. So the last time they did it was only five months ago. So now we come to the sort of the final conclusion here that if more of the Bitcoin data is getting gobbled up by inscriptions, which is witness data, which is more easy to prune, and you don't validate it in most situations, you just download it. It's like the blockchain will consist of more blob space, than regular space, which makes the node actually easier to sync because it has a higher concentration of blob space that you can actually prune. So the node that you actually have to store at the end of the day will be smaller in bytes because you can prune the witness data. And it might even be faster to sync because you don't have to do any computation Mm. on all these inscriptions. So when people are saying this is making it more difficult for people in Africa to sync a node actually It could be completely so that it's the opposite, that it is actually making the node leaner. And at the same time, it is increasing the security budget, which makes
0: the system more secure. Boom. Wow. Okay. Yeah,
1: that's the final (laughs) galaxy brain take, you know? (laughs) Yeah, right. I love that. I want
0: to try and summarize this. Okay, so... We have a way to create block space demand. The additional utility plugs right into Bitcoin. No hard fork needed. We are, It's already up and running. So we have potentially a way to consume block space that generates block space demand, which pays for miners to pay for security. In addition to that, Eric, what you're saying is that all of this extra data that's going into a Bitcoin block doesn't need to be validated because they're not transferring Bitcoins. They're not transferring Satoshis around. We're just adding in data into the chain. And so because of this mechanism of assume valid, You actually don't have to do the computational processing to make sure that all these Bitcoin transfers are valid or not, because they're not Bitcoin transfers. And so the consumption of Bitcoin block space to do crazy NFT stuff is actually not a burden on node requirements. And so you're actually because you don't have to do the computation to validate the NFT. The more NFT data is in the block, the less computational overhead there is per block. And so, boom, we've solved, perhaps solved, Bitcoin's block space demand problem, while also making the chain more manageable by nodes globally across the world. Is that a fair summary? Yes, except for one tiny, tiny little nitpick, which is
2: that the four megabyte blocks, you actually still have to download it. Mm. It's less computationally intense to validate because you don't validate Mm -hmm. most of it. If it's this four megabyte block that we just saw, that's, you don't have to, there's nothing to validate at all, except like the proof of work header Mm -hmm. in the header hash, (laughs) but you do have to download more data, but after you download it, you can throw it away. Right. So you down you, it does increase how much you have to download when you're doing your first full node sync.
0: Bandwidth goes up, bandwidth requirements goes up, CPU requirements goes down.
2: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yep. But on the whole, I would say because you then prune it, you can throw it away. If you combine pruning with skipping the computation, and then you add a little bit more. Data that needs to be downloaded, but is still within the bounds of the block size limit. I think all in all, it does create a leaner node.
1: Yeah, like people miss the fact that a full node uses many resources when it's downloading and validating the blockchain. They tend to focus on you know the size of the data being downloaded and the bandwidth, you know the amount of data that you need to download and disk space, the amount of data that you need to store a disk. But for example, signature verification is very expensive, and a huge amount of the you know capacity constraints of Bitcoin come from needing to keep signature verification fast during initial block download so you can you know verify everything that you need and for example that inscriptions don't contribute to that signature verification budget and then you could imagine and this is you know an upgrade that is not on the table now nobody's proposing it but you could imagine an upgrade that would let full nodes just not download download witnesses at all at some point in the future The witnesses are sort of in a, they are segregated in the block. So they're elsewhere in a separate Merkle tree. And you could have an upgrade which said, okay, you know, any witnesses that are older than a year or older than this many, you know, Bitcoin core releases, we're just not going to download them. And I wouldn't want to say whether these are full nodes or not, but these represent a reasonable security compromise.
2: I'd say we don't have full nodes in Bitcoin anymore ever since we introduced the assume valid flag as a default.
1: That's a philosophical thing that I can't <laughs> vouch for. I mean, yeah, it's a different security trade-off. I and mean, some people run without the assume valid flag. But yeah, this would give us an additional security trade-off. And it would mean that you didn't even have to download this old witness data. And, you know, the people who cared about the rare Pepes, they would be free to continue downloading and storing and archiving all the rare Pepes in the witnesses. And it might even be that bandwidth and disk space no longer becomes a concern for most nodes.
2: But the thing that I think that you need to take away from this is that you saw that, you know, me walking through the realizations and the twists and the turns and then Mm -hmm. the galaxy brain take it Mm -hmm. to end. What's happening currently in the Bitcoin discussion is that this thing is very new to a lot of people that haven't thought about this issue perhaps for some time. And they are therefore at different layers, stages, they're at different yeah. stages. And you saw how much disagreement there are like in one realization, you're like, Oh, actually this does create more both. And then the next realization is actually it doesn't. And so people are going to be in different steps of the ladder and they're going to yell at each other. And I don't know if they're ever going to, all of them reach the galaxy brain take, but let's hope that we, with this podcast contribute to some of that today.
0: Absolutely. And I know I have been branded to probably my fault as a Bitcoin hater. But as soon as something like this shows up, I get really excited because it starts to check some of the boxes that I want to see in crypto economic systems that I hope stand the test of time. So I definitely agree with that, Eric, that I hope that this podcast can help produce some of these outcomes. The last topic of conversation, I want to start with this particular inscription, Inscription 466. This warms my heart because one of my first introductions into video games was playing Doom while sitting on my dad's lap, pressing the space bar. And this is Doom in Bitcoin. I don't know if this, that, I don't remember. How do you shoot? (laughs) I don't know how you shoot. You
1: click on the, so the thing is, is that it's in an iframe. We sandbox all the iframes for, to keep everything on chain. Uh So if you scroll down, there should be a preview or a content link. Both of those should work. And that will give you like a full screen preview. Oh. No, no. Yeah. Either of those. Okay. The inscriptions content model is very compatible with the web. So we're adding as many content types as we can do. Yeah, this is insane. I was at the SF Bitcoin devs meetup, like presenting on inscriptions and I was playing a snake, uh-huh. like a snake game that somebody uploaded while I was answering questions about how the system works. It may have been the coolest moment of my entire life. And how many kilobytes? This is like 300 kilobytes or something like that, or even less? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, like this, this can game? be very small. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff in here is like generative. It's like algorithmic, like shaders and lighting and stuff. And I, I don't see very many textures. So I, I don't think this one was non-standard, which would mean that it's below the 400 kilobyte limit. Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm sure that it's smaller than the 400 kilobyte limit, but it's just so cool to remember how, like when computers were limited, how clever you had to be and how small actually you can make these games yeah, so yeah, they yeah. actually fit inside like a single transaction in Bitcoin, it's insane.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff for people to explore. Like obviously we support like PNGs, JPEGs, all the normal content types, but also HTML and SVG. And you need to, it's basically just HTML and SVG. We sandbox everything. So you can't make outgoing web requests hmm. when that content is loaded on the server, which means that everything you see is guaranteed to be on chain. It's just so much fun to play with. And, and like, I'm a big fan of early computer art, you know, like the demo scene and those days when you had to really like scrounge for bytes. I can't wait to see how people, you know, like just exploit the browser standards, right? Crazy HTML JS and CSS. And we haven't done it yet, but what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna relax the sandbox that this content runs in so that you can publish resources in one inscription and then reference them in the HTML or SVG of a future inscription. So you can actually kind of create this on-chain content library that you can remix inscriptions and you can essentially publish entire websites. Now, obviously the space will be at a premium, but I think it could be a really cool sort of recursive composable ecosystem of content
0: yeah and so before i got distracted by playing doom on bitcoin this kind of leads into the question i was going to ask is you know putting doom on bitcoin first it was putting dick butts on bitcoin great the time to dick is all-time lows TTP, time to penis time to penis excuse me <laughs> and then we put like luke dash juniors don't do this request on bitcoin i thought that Can was pretty- i just
1: say to the haters that if you really don't like inscriptions and you really think that people shouldn't do it Like, don't mention it. Don't tweet to your, like, 200,000 followers that you should not put monkeys on the blockchain. Like, they're just going to put monkeys on the blockchain. Like, just
0: shh. So we get past that phase, and then we're at the phase of, like, yo, we can put Doom on Bitcoin. And I just got distracted playing Doom on Bitcoin. And then you, Casey, just talked about, like, hey, there's, like, people can do more things. And I think, hopefully you know, once upon a time, Ethereum had ICOs and they were bad and terrible. And then they matured into DAOs and yield farming. And so like things in this space, like and all development has nothing to do with crypto. All development matures and progresses as we experiment and iterate. And so maybe I can leave this as an open ended question, a question for the listener to imagine about, but we've unlocked something here on Bitcoin and we don't know what yet to do with it. But people are sound, like knowing crypto people are going to play around and they're going to try stuff and maybe we unlock some vast green new field over in bitcoin land that unlocks some new use case that both fixes the fee issue on Bitcoin and makes Bitcoin uh, easier blockchain to run.
1: And hopefully more fun. Mm. Bitcoin is starved for fun.
0: 100%. Eric, do you have any comments on that?
2: Yeah, no, I agree that Bitcoin is finally, once again, fun again. Do you guys remember that subreddit had a logo with a wizard mm-hmm. that said, you know, internet join internet us, money, yeah. magic internet mm-hmm. money. Yeah, so if you look at that block that took up four megabytes, that was actually the wizard. Oh, really? Actually, it was a bald wizard because the whole story is that people were Like, you know, Udi Wertheimer has been trolling about Taproot not having any use case except as the butt of his jokes. So people sort of responded by putting Udi's worst Luna takes and FDX takes as inscriptions in the ordinal systems. And then Udi responded by making this four megabyte block where he made taprootwizards.com. And it, tries to reignite the spirit of having fun with Bitcoin again. And actually, I just, like one hour before I jumped on this podcast, I got the second like wizard that was made. So now my profile picture... Do you know the inscription number? Uh, my inscription number is 1107. And Udi's is, I think, 652.
1: And if you want to filter inscriptions from your Bitcoin core node, you can check out inscription 666 which is a patch that Luke-Jr wrote to filter your inscription. So very handy <laughs> to be able to reference these things.
0: How do I search by ordinal number? Casey, is that possible?
1: It's inscription number. Currently, we don't actually surface okay. a URL to do okay. that because they're unstable. Ah. We can't stabilize them. You can actually type ordinals.com inscriptions the inscription number, and that will give you the inscriptions list starting with that inscription. So it'll be the first one. And there's a nascent market forming for these things. Like the level of degeneracy is extremely high. Like it's insane. People are selling like just, yeah, so I'm, I don't know how this is going to turn out. (laughs) Well, I think
0: we can end it there unless you guys have any other additional things to say. Here's Eric's inscription number with, oh, we got some tungsten cubes. We got the rainbow. We got the Bitcoin wizard.
1: Let me do the mandatory podcast guest chilling. Uh-huh. So like, yeah, like check out the project at ordinals.com. That's the block explorer. You can get the wallet at github.com slash Casey slash ORD. Great opportunity to learn how to run a full node because you need to run it. I have a much less professional podcast called the Hell Money podcast. It's on YouTube, helppodcast.money. Me and my friend Aaron, we do it. Hopefully, like we sort of bring the fun to Bitcoin a little bit. Shout out to Baria Bitcoiners and SF Bitcoin devs. If you want to come hear about me ramble more about inscriptions in person, you should come to the SF Bitcoin devs or the Baria Bitcoin meetup. And that's it for me. I just want to see what happens. I'm really happy to contribute a sort of an interesting medium, an interesting digital art medium for people to explore and find the boundaries of.
0: And Bankless listeners can get all of those resources. I'm sharing them on screen along with Casey's Twitter profile here at Rotomor, O-R-D-A-R-M-O-R. That's Casey's Twitter handle. And he looks like he's got all of his links over on his Twitter bio as well. And of course, Thank you, Eric, once again, for tapping in to be my Bitcoiner technical co-host. Much appreciated all the way through and through. You can follow Eric at ERCWL on Twitter. Casey, Eric, thank you both for coming and helping me walk me through NFTs on Bitcoin.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Awesome conversation. Thank
0: you
2: so much, David. Yeah, It was fun. Thanks a lot.
0: Cheers. Cheers. And like always, Bankless Nation, crypto is risky, Bitcoin is risky, ETH is risky. NFTs on Bitcoin, perhaps also risky. Who knows? But maybe we fix the fee subsidy, so maybe less risk? I don't know. We'll find out. This is the Journey West. We're on the frontier. I'm glad you are with us on the Bankless Journey. Thanks a lot.